Well, um, we are in the studio again here at the University of the Pacific. My name is Dr. Mary Lomax Garaditsi, and I, this is Humanizing Us, um, a podcast um, around identity and the ways that our identity really informs uh, who we've become and who we are becoming. And, um, and it's also a way for us to think about these issues of equity, uh, identity, belonging, um, as, uh, ways of, of thinking about how to be more human in the world. And so thus humanizing us. And I am so excited to be in the studio today, um, with, um, a woman that I met actually this year. Um, and, and, the, and during the spring, I believe it was during a, uh, award ceremony for women in the, uh, not only in the university community, but the community that were doing, uh, spectacular things. And professor Edrelina Coe is the professor uh, is a professor of law here at the University of the Pacific's McGeorge School of Law. She teaches global um, lawyering skills one and two. Um, she's also the uh, teaches a pris prisoner civil rights uh, mediation clinic. Actually, I believe that's the actual clinic. She's going to tell us about that. Um, and she's also uh, teaches reproductive rights and justice. Um, I had a really wonderful opportunity to spend some time um, with uh, Professor Co. I think it might might have been within the last month um, with the unfortunate uh, overturning of, of uh, Roe v. Wade. She was one of the first scholars that I personally was able to spend time with. And we provided just a platform for her to share what the um, what the meaning of that is, um, particularly um, from the lens of those that were uh, um, would be most harmed um, and, and the implications of that, that of that uh, legal ruling. But she's also also a member of not only the California bar, but she's also uh, a member of the uh, DC bar. Uh, that's the district of Columbia. And so um, pretty phenomenal, <laughs> really bright. <laughs> um, and um, a uh, woman who's a scholar and as well as uh, someone that I'm just so, so pleased just to be able to be in your presence and just to be able now to call you a colleague and a friend. And um, one of the things that we've been doing, um, and I'm going to, if it's okay, if I call you Edrelina? Yes, please. Uh, Edrelina is that we, I wanted to launch this podcast because I believe that we are being called now to be more human um, uh, in the world in ways that perhaps we may not fully understand what that means. Before we uh, began this session, you had made a comment to one of the students um, here um, that now is a time um, for individual that, that now is a time for people to be thinking about going into the law and that the law itself is really needs great minds and obviously not just great minds, but I would also say people with great hearts and people that are seeking, you know, to do uh, good in the world. Um, and so I think one of the things that I like to, you know, pose to you in this kind of opening question is, um, you know, what led you in your path to becoming a professor of law. And you could begin that, you know, storytelling any way that you want to. But um, but thinking about your own identity itself, you know, um, um, how you identify. Obviously, we know you professionally as a professor of law. Um, I know that you're a mother. I know we're both mothers of two girls. Mm -hmm. um, but 
I think there's a, you know, there's more to the story um, around how you chose to even focus and on the areas that I first came to really kind of delve deeply with you, which was on issues of reproductive rights and justice. Um, and there's just so much more that I'm still learning about you. And I just wanted to give both you and, you know, our listening audience and an opportunity just to hear a little bit more about your story. Okay. Thank you so much for having me um, and for that very packed question. <laughs> um, I mean, so many things have led me to where I am now. Um, I would say since we're at the University of the Pacific and I so rarely get to spend time on the undergraduate campus, maybe I'll start there. Um, I distinctly remember going to an event with a panel mm -hmm. of public interest lawyers. Mm -hmm. And I knew I was interested in the law, mm -hmm. but I didn't know exactly what type of law I wanted to pursue. Mm -hmm. um, but it was interesting to me, mm -hmm. right? The, the rules that we as a society have to follow. And a woman on the panel, her name is Kelly Evans. She worked for the ACLU and she mm -hmm. was talking about her career and she started at an organization called Equal Rights Advocates. And she told the story of how the organization was involved in taking on the San Francisco Fire Department and forcing them by law um, and through a lawsuit to allow women to become firefighters. Mm -hmm. And this was within my lifetime. And I thought it was absurd that if women wanted to be firefighters, they couldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, but that this organization had brilliantly used the law to change that so that women could participate in that type of employment if they wanted to mm -hmm. and were qualified to do so. Mm -hmm. And as soon as she finished her talk, I thought, I'm going to go intern and work for that organization. And so the next day I called them and mm -hmm. I said, I'd really like to work with your organization. I think the work mm -hmm. you do is really impactful. It's interesting. And I'd love to get more exposure to the kind of law that you practice. Mm -hmm. And so I joined the organization as an intern, our college intern, and was exposed to some of the most brilliant lawyers, thinkers, and women that I could have ever imagined. And so much of my pursuit of women's rights and then ultimately reproductive rights started in that moment in a classroom mm -hmm. um, with a lawyer who had no idea the impact that she was going to have on me until about two years ago. I knew she was speaking at a bar association mm -hmm. event in Sacramento. And I said, I'm going. Mm -hmm. And I went up to her at the reception mm -hmm. hour and I said, you have no idea who I am but I want to tell you how impactful you've been in my life. Mm. And I told her you were an attorney at the ACLU. And now I think she's working for the governor. Yes. But you were an attorney at the ACLU. You, did, you gave a talk at UC Berkeley and I was in that audience. And ever since then, this is how my career path has gone. And so mm -hmm. thank you. I'm incredibly grateful that you took that time to share your your career path mm -hmm. uh, with students. Mm -hmm. um, and so incidentally, I was recently, a student at, at UC Berkeley had reached out to me last week and said, I'm part of a student organization. Mm -hmm. um, would you be interested in joining a panel um, with women's rights lawyers? And it's from eight o'clock to nine o'clock, I think, on a Friday night. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh my gosh, that's so late. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, of course I would be. Mm -hmm. This is the exact pay it forward moment mm -hmm. that you've been waiting for. So um, 
that's sort of how it all started. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a great story. I love that. You know, you, you put your finger on, um, a, a very specific, uh, engagement, um, where your formation, you know, because you were already a college student. So you were already thinking about these things and, you know, it's, it's, it's safe to say that issues of, of gender, uh, rights, um, has been, is, is, is clearly has been a part of your calling, a part of your professional path. Um, talk a, a little bit about, you know, some of your early experiences, um, that have, uh, that, that were gender influence or gender centric or, uh, gender informed, um, that may have been, um, you know, kind of like, the, uh, they say, you know, the, these things that happen to you and you look back as you just looked back on this are, are, are indicators of the, 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 of what has always been inside of you. You know, I, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more, maybe even some early experiences that were gender informed, um, that impacted you. I mean, there's no question, right, that being raised predominantly by my mom mm -hmm. um, while my dad was living in the Philippines, that was a tremendous influence mm -hmm. in what I saw growing up and mm -hmm. um, both in terms of what women could be in society and everything that they could do, but also mm -hmm. in terms of some of the challenges that they mm -hmm. would face. And so even at a very young age, I wouldn't say I was thinking, oh, I'm going to go into women's rights and mm -hmm. I see all this inequality. But I do think it has an impression on you as you're as you grow up, um, both in good ways, but also in ways that make you think critically about, mm -hmm. huh, is this is this right? Is there something that that mm -hmm. uh you know, why is this so hard for some people and not mm -hmm. others? And I think it, it probably influenced my education path. So when I started college, when my counselors would ask me, well, what kind of classes are you interested mm -hmm. in? And, you know, with general ed, you take history, you take political science and all of these things. But um, there were courses that had an emphasis on the history of women or mm -hmm. Um, the sociology of women or the psychology of women. And I thought those are, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, sure, I'll take those. And slowly but surely, I got a very solid and in-depth education about women in society and the way that women have flourished, but also the challenges that they have mm -hmm. faced. Um, and I've always thought, that's not right. Um, and, and some people, right, they see injustices and they say, okay, well, that's just the way it is. And for me, mm -hmm. it was a calling, right? It was a, mm -hmm. I'm going to do what I can with my life to make this better. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about some of the choices that you've made professionally um, that are informed by those early experiences, whether it be for the, you know, experiences with your mother, um, the influence that she had on you. You mentioned your father was, um, um, sounds like for a period of time, away um, in the Philippines. Um, those uh, choices that you ended up making, particularly around the Prisoner Civil Rights me me uh, Mediation Clinic, and maybe you can describe what that is, and even the choices around the reproductive rights and justice, and, and you've given us a clue already. Um, there's, there's still things that you can choose even as your focus on gender justice issues. How did those things really emerge as kind of pathways for you? So 
It's funny when I look at my career, if I'm, if I'm asked to update my bio on the website mm -hmm. and I look at my career and I think some people think, oh, that's a very linear career. And mm -hmm. it, it really wasn't. Mm -hmm. it, it was sort of what, what my life was dictating at the time, as well as how could I get my interests to mm -hmm. um, intersect with, yes. with, with that all uh -huh. at the same time. And so. Um, the Prisoner Civil Rights Mediation Clinic is a clinic at McGeorge that students participate in. And they, so let me step back. There, there are about 30 prisons, um, 32 prisons in the state of California, and most of them are housed in the eastern side of California. And so mm -hmm. the federal courts um, in Sacramento and Fresno get a lot of prisoner civil rights cases. And... Those courts are heavily impacted by those cases and they're overwhelmed by the volume. Mm. And McGeorge administrators uh, were sitting with federal judges and said, how could we help? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, maybe you could help with the prisoner civil rights caseload. And it began, you know, sort of figuring out, well, how could we participate in that? Mm -hmm. And they were interested in seeing, could we try and settle some of these cases or mediate them in a way that the parties would be equally satisfied mm -hmm. um, and not having to pursue the litigation for two years, three years, 10 years? Um, how could we resolve some of these cases? Mm -hmm. And they thought, well, why don't we try alternative dispute resolution mm -hmm. or mediation? And so students get involved by, we get assigned cases from the court mm -hmm. and then students work on those cases. They go out to the prison or they, you know, meet with via Zoom or telephone with the plaintiff and they talk about his case and they mm -hmm. prepare him to come into court um, and ultimately engage or participate in a mediation uh, settlement conference with the state. And if they can settle their claims um, in a way that's satisfactory to them and as well as to the state, then the mm -hmm. cases are settled. Um, so that's that's how students participate. In terms of how I got involved in yeah. it, for about nine and a half years, I worked at the federal courthouse and I worked on these cases. Mm -hmm. And so my expertise, in addition to reproductive rights, is in prisoner civil rights. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't, if you would have asked me at any point before that, is that an area of law that you would be interested in? Mm -hmm. I would have said no. Yeah. Um, I have no interest in that. And I, I'm more interested in the gender space. Yeah. Um, but it just so happened I moved back to California to be close from Washington, D.C. I moved back to California mm -hmm. to be closer to family. This is and after you it finished was a law job. school. You finished law school at Georgetown mm -hmm. uh, Law Center where you got your JD. Mm hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I spent some time in Washington, D.C., but, mm -hmm. but when I needed to be back in California, that job was an opening and the judge mm -hmm. said, would you be interested in doing this? Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure, but mm -hmm. I needed a job yeah. and it was a great job, it turned out. And mm -hmm. I would have never guessed that I would have spent a decade of my mm -hmm. life working on these cases, mm -hmm. but it was so, uh, it was so important to me that I, it was important to me to know that regardless of your status, right? If you are a prisoner, you've, you're a convicted felon, regardless of that status, if you're filing a civil rights case in court that you get a fair shake mm -hmm. from whoever's reviewing those cases. And so for me, it was 
it was a privilege and an honor to be part of the administration of justice from that side. So, Professor Ko, what you're telling me is that you, for a period of almost 10 years, and you still continue even in your professor role through the, uh, the clinic, that you took on cases for uh, a sector of society that, for the most part, people do not even see their humanity anymore. Not only have they lost their ability, um, you know, to obviously be free in society because, you know, they're in the carceral state, but uh, oftentimes they've lost all so many other rights. And so you're using your legal skills and your calling to uh, essentially, you know, fight for the civil rights of, 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 of a group of people that society has pretty much agreed to that they're throw away. Um Tell me what are some of the greatest uh, things around, what did you learn through those experiences about hum the human, the human uh, parts of, of, of how we lose that even in our systems? Right. So uh, let me say two things about that. I think uh -huh. the greatest thinkers of our time would all agree that how you treat the most vulnerable citizens in society, whether it's the elderly, children, or people who are locked up in prison because they are at the complete discretion of the state and the government. How you treat these vulnerable people in society is a reflection of your society, right? Mm -hmm. Not the richest people, how are they doing, but really how do we treat them? Mm -hmm. And that resonates deeply with me. Mm -hmm. um, and then in terms of... <clears throat> I forget the other question. No, but that, no, that was that's a profound response. <laughs> How do we treat those that are at the margins, the deepest margins, or as Derek Bell would say, Professor Derek Bell, those that are at the bottom of the well in society? Right. Oh, and the other piece I would say um, that I learned over. I wish I, I wish I could say I learned it sooner, mm -hmm. but I would say over the course of time, mm -hmm. at some point, mm -hmm. it really dawned on me that we cannot treat people as their worst, whatever their worst mistake is, mm. right? I wouldn't want to be judged by my mm -hmm. worst mistake or treated um, day in and day out based on that. Yes, they are incarcerated and they are serving their time for the mm -hmm. mistake that they made, mm -hmm. but otherwise they are mm -hmm. still human. Mm -hmm. um, and at least in an, at least our constitution protects that. Um, so I considered it uh, you know, again, a privilege and an honor to be part of mm -hmm. that administration of justice. Mm -hmm. That's a deeply humanizing statement um, and a value um, um, that that it seems like it guides you and it guides your work. This idea that you can tell so much about a society, you can tell so much about a people, you can tell so much about an institution by how it regards those that have been left uh, um, left out and have been um, in many cases oppressed and marginalized. Where do you think that comes from when you think back? I wish I knew because mm -hmm. I wish I were able to mm -hmm. bottle it and give mm -hmm. it to others, right? This uh -huh. idea that if you see injustices, you're motivated to mm -hmm. contribute in a way that can improve those injustices or if not erase them completely. And mm -hmm. I don't know where it comes from, except that it is a calling. And I think we all have a calling. I, it may I, just be that is mine. Yes. Um, yes. Because if you have a law degree, you can do any number of things, mm -hmm. right? You can certainly take a path that is going to make your life incredibly uh, comfortable and financially secure. Mm -hmm. You can take another path that's going to allow you to feed your soul and mm -hmm. um, allow you to contribute to society. 
uh, mm-hmm. in a way that makes you feel great mm-hmm. at the end of the day. I tried to do X. I tried to do Y. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's important to share though with the audience as well that they know that you are also a pro Tim judge. Um, and that is someone who has, is a lawyer and the requirements, make sure I get this right, um, that you need to be a lawyer for at least 10 years, which you have and are, and is trained for small claims claims cases that can easily take take the place of a regular judge. Is that accurate? Yes, Uh that is accurate. Okay. (laughs) So um, talk to me about, or talk to us about how the pro Tim judge piece fits in to this kind of, this construct of justice that that you're engaged in um, as, you know, you're a legal scholar. I, I engage you as a legal scholar, but also we're also engaging you as a lawyer and as somebody that is also a judge. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, how that fits into this whole piece of kind of like living a and and, and, and being a, a, a more humanizing person through the fields that you've been called to. Yeah, so that is also a, a privilege and an honor mm-hmm. to sit to sit on the bench in Sacramento. And um, part of it is because there are so few women mm-hmm. and people of color on the bench mm-hmm. that drew me to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think it does make a difference in terms mm-hmm. of not just the perspective that you bring to the bench, but also in terms of the people that are appearing before you to mm-hmm. see that, you know, okay, we have people that look like us Mm -hmm. in these positions that are going to be making these decisions. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that drew me to volunteering and Mm -hmm. allowing this to be sort of my pro bono work of the month. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting, right? It's Mm -hmm. interesting as an educator, someone who is teaching future lawyers, Mm -hmm. um, it gives me a touch point. I think in, in academia, you can get really isolated um, among people who, oftentimes think like you, mm-hmm. who have resources like you. You could call them echo chambers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but they're not, they're not ordinary people. Uh-huh. Um, they're not people with ordinary legal, legal problems and disputes. And mm-hmm. so when, or, you know, when I sit as a judge, mm-hmm. it gives me a touch point mm-hmm. with people who are outside of academia. And importantly to me, it gives me the opportunity to practice a lot of the skills that I'm teaching students, mm-hmm. um, which was also important to me. For me, when I teach global lawyering skills mm-hmm. and I tell my students or I teach my students, here's how we do the legal research, here's how we do the legal analysis, mm-hmm. I want to be doing that same skill or exercising or practicing those same skills so that I'm current as opposed to, you know, sometimes if you get into academia, you can get so um, immersed in your scholarship and and just your teaching that you lose Mm -hmm. some of that skill set because you've been away for a while. So judging has Mm -hmm. given me the opportunity to have all of those benefits, Mm -hmm. right? Not only, you know, not only um, performing a service for my community, but also having a touch point with ordinary people and ordinary legal disputes, as well as practicing the skill sets that I'm teaching my students. So um, you're a legal educator and a legal scholar, um, and you're taking these theoretical frameworks um, and and analytical frameworks, and by the practical piece of the judge piece, it's almost like you put in what, you know, my field, we call a theory to practice in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Something you said that I want to dig a little bit more in, 
particularly in the role that you have, the pro tem for the Sacramento uh, County Superior Court. Um, you said when you're there, um, I would imagine on the bench that people that are before you, um, that um, you're overseeing their case and, uh, and then everybody else who's in the courtroom, whether they are witnesses or they're playing some part, you know, in the, the judicial process, whatever that is, they get to see someone that looks like them. So as you're thinking, you know, how does representation, what role does representation play, you know, and um, the work that you do, not just as a legal, legal educator in the classroom, I, I, that's where I know you originally, but in thinking about your representation as a judge in Sacramento, one of the most diverse communities in the state of California. Right. I, I think because of that diversity, it is important for people in the community mm-hmm. to come in and see themselves in these positions of power. And that's what it is. It is it is a position of power mm-hmm. um, because you are entrusted or I am entrusted to make decisions that are highly consequential mm-hmm. in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so if I think when people come into the courthouse if they see, okay, this is an institution Mm -hmm. that also values diversity um, and and fairness that comes with that, that they are more likely to trust in the process, that they are more likely to feel as though they were heard Mm -hmm. and they are more likely to accept the outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you said something about diversity and, and oftentimes people, you know, they approach diversity from a you know, I, I say from a, a very simplistic perspective, um, and so much of diversity is about helping people see themselves in the very parts of society, i.e. institutions that are also part of their life, you know, um, and, and it sounds like it's so simplistic, but it's so significant, Um this idea of the power of representation, I still say this all the time. I said, do you know what the power of representation can do? It can transform the lives, not only of those that can that see themselves, but the other ones that may not see themselves exactly, but then they can recognize that the world is inclusive of a lot of different people. And I always say, gosh, if we just understood the power of representation, then institutions would probably work even harder to ensure that all the children, that all the people are able to find themselves um, in whatever the positions are. Um, the power of representation is has to be a part of your of your of your work, whether it's formal or informal. Um, how do you how do you uh, approach this idea of representation, even as a legal scholar and as a teacher? And you're working with the next generation of of, of lawyers, um, judges, um, you know, whatever area that they choose to go to. You know, you're helping them to think about who they can become. What do you think is the power of representation in the cl- in the classroom that you bring? I underestimate it. And I learn every semester how much I underestimate it because it usually comes to me in my student evaluations um, Mm. that, you know, a student will write, I can't tell you how important it was for me to see a woman of color professor. You were one of my only female professors, if not my only female professor, and you were my only uh, person of color who was also a professor. And that makes a huge difference to be able to see 
someone in that role at the mm-hmm. podium that they too can aspire to that, right? Mm-hmm. There is a, there is a point of entry for them too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I underestimate it all the time because I, I'm just doing my job, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I'm doing my job. I'm, I'm aware. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm mainly doing my job and insofar as I can doing it in a way that, um, is above, uh, is, is above, um, I try to do it in a way that makes it easier for people who are coming up behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's both a responsibility. Yeah. It's a responsibility that um, many of us that um, are the first or maybe not enough of, um, we carry with us. Right. It is a privilege to be in all of these positions mm-hmm. as an attorney, as a judge, as a professor. Um but it comes with a responsibility. It sure does. Mm-hmm. And we think about them. I would imagine you think about that responsibility. Yeah, certainly. Because if you're, I mean, I try not to too much. Of otherwise, course. it can get overwhelming. But. Yeah, and it can be, for some people, as we've seen, it, it can be debilitating, you know, where it impacts them. Right. But if you're the first or if you're the only, um, in, in at least in some students' lives, even if not on campus, if you're the mm-hmm. first or the only, you realize that you are under a certain level of scrutiny, which can be good and bad, but yes. you are under a certain level of scrutiny. And I don't want to make a mistake or... Um, an error that would jeopardize an opportunity for someone up, someone coming up behind me. Absolutely. You know, that level of, of, uh, of accountability, um, that, that that's what I, I, I call that. It's like a personal accountability that we have that society puts upon us, uh, unknowingly or knowingly, um, that as, a a professional, uh, scholar, a woman of color in your field that, um, you're at the top of your game and I can only imagine where you're going to end up continuing going. Um, that, that type of, of, of accountability can also, you know, drive you and, and lead you to do even greater things. Um, tell me a little bit about what you kind of see happening for yourself in the future. <laughs> what might happen? What are some things that when you start to think of becoming, you know, really becoming Lena, fully becoming Lena. what are some things that you see in your future? Oh, wow. I feel like I've become Lena, mm. um, and I really, and it, it only in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm so grateful. I should say I'm so grateful for that. But mm-hmm. when people, when I'm having conversations like this one and people mm-hmm. say, you're an attorney, you're a judge, you're a professor, um, sometimes I think, who are you talking about? <laughs> You're talking about me, yeah, which is talking wonderful. About you. <laughs> right. And so in many ways, I've accomplished a lot of what, you know, I would have even thought about in my wildest dreams. Uh-huh. Um, and I think my goal at this point is just to continue contributing. Mm. Obviously there's, we're experiencing an incredibly challenging moment for mm-hmm. people who support reproductive rights. And so for me, that is where I'm 
channeling a lot of energy mm -hmm. um, and all of the experiences that I've had and all of the things that I've gained and developed and mm -hmm. honed in on as I've moved from, you know, college to law school to practice to all of these different experiences. How can I bring and channel all of that into supporting, mm. a, a, you know, movement forward mm -hmm. um, on these issues? So. So the time that we're in, a time such as this, um, where we are experiencing the early days of of being um, uh, the what I call the early days of post row as we've known it before, um, is going to create new challenges, but it also will create new opportunities um, because there's always opportunities in in these these spaces. As you're becoming, you know even more of who you are um, in these various kind of like, there's other roles, but we'll, let's talk about the attorney, the professor and the judge. Um, and as you already bring the expertise that you're bringing as a legal thinker and scholar um, and professor around reproductive rights and justice. Um, and I just want to mention um, a piece that you and I talked about in the in the last conversation that we had, where you wrote for the Rutgers Law Review, which was just recently published this past fall of 2021. You introduced a concept that was called uh, abortion privilege, which is also the name of the title of your uh, of your article. Um, talk a little bit about how you becoming more of who you are through the lens of looking at the, one of the greatest issues of our time, which is going to be continue to be reproductive rights and justice. Talk a little bit about what abortion privilege is and, and really how you see that this is an important uh, way for you to kind of bring your brilliance and your experience into the world. Yeah, so a lot has been written about reproductive rights and about mm -hmm. abortion from both ends of the spectrum and sort of everything in between. And at the time that I wrote Abortion Privilege, abortion was still a constitutional right. Mm -hmm. um, but what it means to be a constitutional right versus, um, you know, what it means to be law in paper versus law in actuality in people's lives is different. Um, by its very nature, constitutional law is negative. So it just means, okay, if you have the constitutional right to abortion, it means the government can't interfere with that. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that you have the right to um, be supported in that decision. It doesn't mean that if you're someone who is low income, that the government will support you with Medicaid funds. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is always this uh, gulf that exists between legal rights and how people practice or have access to those legal rights in society. And for me, the way that I looked at the abortion issue in that article was mm -hmm. to say, there are some people who have, everybody in theory had these legal rights, mm -hmm. but there are only some people who can actually practice them. Um, and to me, that was a very, that was, that was a way to, you know, use privilege and yeah. the discussion around privilege in this particular context. Um, and even when you think about now, um, after the Dobbs decision, not having a constitutional right, it's going to exacerbate that privilege. Um, even if you live in a state where abortion is illegal, if you have the means, you will certainly be able to travel. Mm -hmm. um, so privilege is going to come up in a number of different ways. Um, and, and we see it now. Already playing, already out. playing out. Exactly. 
So um, the reproductive rights piece, the continuing your work with the um, civil rights for those that are currently incarcerated that are that are bringing cases forward around their own civil rights issues. What else do you see or any other things that might be on the horizon for you? Uh, professionally? Mm-hmm. Just more of the same. More of the same. More but more of the, of the same. same. More of the same, but hopefully bringing new perspective to it, different um, ways of looking at the issues, mm-hmm. obviously doing some, you know, responding to what's going on in society now. Um, but more of the same. More of the same. Um, I feel I feel very grateful in that I can look back mm-hmm. on my career mm-hmm. and feel as though I did everything I could to contribute to make things better. Um, even even with reproductive rights, even with the seminal Roe versus Wade being overturned in my lifetime, I don't mm-hmm. look back on my career and think what a what a failure or, you know, what a, what a disappointment. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I look back and I think I'm so grateful that I had an opportunity to mm-hmm. hold that line as long as we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's an opportunity, an unfortunate one, but it is an opportunity mm-hmm. to think, okay, when you look at Roe versus Wade and you look at mm-hmm. the way that privilege existed, even when there was a constitutional right, now we have an opportunity. We can build this up in the way that we want it, want it to look, right? Um, it might be a little and, bit of patchwork, state by state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so there's something there's something about that too that mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of people, if you would have asked them in the reproductive rights space or reproductive justice space, what do you think is going to happen with Dobbs? There were people who were very concerned and said, I don't want Dobbs to be overturned. I'll take the shell of Roe versus Wade being maintained. And there were others who said they need to overturn Roe versus Wade because we need to start anew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and you can see that even though Roe versus Wade has been overturned, it doesn't look that different for a lot of people mm-hmm. in the South, for example, where abortion had become so restricted. Even that, uh, even when the constitutional right was still in place. Right. And it maybe helped help, help um, the, our viewers understand, our listeners understand what why it was difficult even before the Dobbs decision that just happened this past June. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the state, the state law that was at issue in Dobbs was Mississippi. Mississippi mm-hmm. had one abortion clinic in their state and that was it. And it was, you know, if you were going to elect that procedure, you had to jump through a number of hoops mm-hmm. um, to do so. And that isn't starkly different from now. now. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of thinking and there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, immediately and, and long term. When you think of the term humanizing us, what does that mean to you? I think humanizing us, I think it means treating people with dignity, Mm -hmm. um, seeing them as human beings first and not as their worst mistake. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it means, it it comes up in the work that I do, right? So for Mm -hmm. prisoner civil rights, it is treating someone as human is not 
I'm going to just focus on this mistake that you made 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, in the reproductive rights space, treating someone as human means trusting mm -hmm. that they can make the decision that is right for them. Mm -hmm. um, that's what it means to be human mm -hmm. to me, um, is, is mm -hmm. just accepting that not everybody is like you and everybody has something to contribute mm -hmm. um, and offer to help our society flourish if we allow them to do it and give them the space and the resources and support to do it. Wow. If we want to find out more about your work, um, what are some places that you suggest the listening audience go to? The McGeorge website. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they will have all of my, um, all, uh, you know, access to all of my writing, mm -hmm. access to podcasts like this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they will be the ones who know where I'll be speaking or, or where I have spoken on different issues, whether it's related to reproductive rights or related to diversity, equity, inclusion, or related to prisoner civil rights. Absolutely. So uh, Professor Edwardlina Coe, uh, Professor of Law at the University of the Pacific George School of Law, um, a lawyer, a legal scholar, um, a judge, um, and a, uh, a woman of uh, extreme character, integrity, and brilliance. What a pleasure it is to be able to be in the studio with you today here on the beautiful Stockton campus of the University of the Pacific. Um, the team here has enjoyed every moment with you. I know that we all have enjoyed the time that we've been here with you. I uh, am just looking forward to the work that we are going to do together. Absolutely. Everything that, anything you do, I want to be associated with it. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much.